0: Hello, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us on episode number 17 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. Joining us today is a very, very special guest, Dr. Ira Helfand. Just real quick, I wanted to give an introduction for him. Uh, Ira Helfind is the co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He's a recipient of the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize, and he is co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. We asked Ira to join us today to talk about, obviously, a very serious topic, and that is uh, the prevention of nuclear war. Um, This is a topic that Joe and I feel is a very natural fit for the topics we normally cover in this podcast, whether it's the high impact of low probability events, the influence of persuasion, influence, et cetera. But to kind of set the table, Ira, I wanted to ask you if you could, and I've heard you give this description before, but it's such a powerful visual, I wanted to give our audience a chance to hear from you. What would it be like for a nuclear bomb, a a modern nuclear device to go off in, say, New York City? What would we be looking at in terms of death toll, in terms of impact and other fallout from such an event?
1: Well, Jimmy, it's it's really one of the critical questions because people don't begin to understand how bad a nuclear war would be. I, I think everyone has this notion that, oh, my God, it would be terrible, but they don't really get it. Um, And partly it's because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people have in their minds images of those cities, and they're very powerful warnings to us about how powerful nuclear weapons are, but they don't begin to prepare us for what would happen today. Uh, A city like New York would not be attacked with one 15 kiloton bomb. It would be attacked with 10 or 15 or 20 or more nuclear weapons, each 30 to 50 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. And to give people an idea of what that would look like, I, I usually use a model in which we propose that there's a single 20 megaton explosion. Uh, the megatonnage involved in this is actually a little bit greater than what would probably happen in a modern attack. The destruction I'm going to describe is actually less than would probably occur because you get more damage if you take a number of smaller nuclear weapons and spread them out, sort of more efficiently, if you will, over the whole mm-hmm. metropolitan area. But Essentially, within a thousandth of a second of the detonation of this bomb, a fireball would form, reaching out for two miles in every direction, four miles across. Within this area, temperatures would rise to 20 million degrees, which is hotter than the surface of the sun, and everything would be vaporized. The buildings, the trees, the people, the upper level of the earth itself would disappear. To a distance of four miles in every direction, the explosion would generate winds greater than 600 miles per hour and blast pressures greater than 25 pounds per square inch. Mechanical forces of that magnitude destroy anything that human beings can build. To a distance of six miles in every direction, the heat would be so intense that automobiles would melt. And to a distance of 16 miles in every direction, the heat would still be so intense that everything flammable would burn. Paper, cloth, gasoline, plastic, wood, heating oil, it would all ignite. Hundreds of thousands of fires, which over the next 30 minutes would coalesce into a firestorm, 32 miles across, covering over 800 square miles. Within this entire area, the temperature would rise to 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. All of the oxygen would be consumed and every living thing would die. In the case of New York, we'd be talking about something in the order of 12 to 15 million people dead in a half an hour. And if this were part of a war between the United States and Russia, this kind of destruction would occur in every major city in both countries. And if NATO got drawn into the conflict, every major city in Canada and Europe. All told, perhaps 200 to 300 to 400 million people dead in an afternoon. And it's important to understand that this local damage is only part of the story because the fires caused by these explosions would put enough soot into the upper atmosphere to block out the sun, to drop temperatures across the planet an average of 14 degrees Fahrenheit. In the interior regions of North America and Eurasia, temperatures would drop 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. We would essentially be creating a short term man-made nuclear ice age. And under these conditions, all of the ecosystems which have evolved since the last naturally occurring ice age would collapse, food production would stop. And it is possible that our species would become extinct. Certainly the vast majority of the human population would starve to death. That's what a modern nuclear war would look like between the United States and Russia.
0: Hey, that's it. That, that's a, was, a- that was a good episode. And uh, thanks for joining us. I will be turning off now. No, I'm kidding. That, I mean, I, so I first saw you on a documentary called Countdown to Zero, where you gave a similar description of this. And what was alarming to me in that documentary was the number of close calls that have just existed purely by accident, almost, it seems like. And I wanted just to, to cover a little bit about that documentary, and in particular, some of these close calls that we've had. I wanted just to, to really quickly, if you could just give us uh, the the close call that happened in January, nineteen ninety five. Uh, to, to me, that was kind of the most alarming episode in the documentary Countdown to Zero. Could you just talk a little bit about that as well? To further set the table for this.
1: Yeah, and and in introducing that, I, I should say you spoke before about nuclear war perhaps being a high-impact, low-probability event. Right. Um, I think we have to understand nuclear war is not a low-probability event. Uh, Nuclear war is something which we have come close to on numerous occasions. And if we do not do things fundamentally differently than the way we are doing them now, nuclear war is something which is going to happen sooner or later, and probably sooner. So the 1995 event is very instructive because... On that day, we did come close to a nuclear war. The United States launched a rocket from uh, um, Norway. It was a weather rocket to study atmospheric phenomenon. And we, in accordance with international protocols, advised the Russians that this rocket would be launched. But somebody in Moscow forgot to pass word on to the appropriate people in the military radar um, network of the Russian Federation. And when this launch was detected, uh, it was after the rocket had separated into its four stages. It was initially interpreted as four warheads, possibly en route to Moscow. Uh, The United States always keeps nuclear attack submarines, missile submarines off the coast of Norway. It's the closest place in open water that we can position our our nuclear submarines to the heartland of, of the Russian Federation. And they, concluded that this was the opening salvo in a surprise nuclear attack. For the only time that we know about in the entire nuclear weapons era, the briefcase, it's called the football, that the Russian leadership carry with them at all times to respond to nuclear attack was activated. And the U.S. has a similar uh, briefcase that the president has at all times. The president of Russia at that time was Boris Yeltsin. He was given a series of options on how to respond to the situation. They ranged from doing nothing to launching a full scale retaliatory attack on the United States, which at that time would have involved about 4,000 nuclear warheads. We don't know exactly what happened in the Kremlin that morning. What Yeltsin should have done was to start World War III. Russia operated then, as did the United States, as do they both now, under a policy called launch on warning, whereby if you believe your country's under nuclear attack, You don't wait for the missiles to land and knock out your ability to retaliate. You launch your missiles right away. We don't know why Yeltsin didn't do that. Uh, He was a very sick man. He was a bad alcoholic who was incapacitated for days at a time by his drinking. He had other health problems as well. All we know is that the Russian leadership waited, and after a few moments, it did become clear that this was not an attack on Russia. You know, this was a very different time than we're living in right now. January of 1995, this was a normal time. U.S.-Russian relations were in a good place in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. U.S.-Chinese relationships were very warm. The North Koreans hadn't tested their nuclear weapons yet. The Indians and the Pakistanis hadn't tested their nuclear weapons yet. The new Cold War between the U.S. and China, the U.S. and Russia, hadn't started. It was a perfectly normal day. There was no conflict any place in the world that should have led to war, let alone nuclear war. And yet we came within moments of blowing up the entire planet. In fact, it is possible that the only reason we are here to have this conversation today is because Boris Yeltsin was too drunk to make a decision until the time passed. Now, this is not a reassuring situation. You know, we did not survive the Cold War because we have had wise leaders or sound doctrine or infallible technology. We survived the Cold War and the years since then in the assessment of Robert McNamara, the former Secretary of Defense, simply because we lucked out. It was luck that prevented nuclear war. And we have to understand, we have been living on borrowed time during this entire period of our history. It is unreasonable to assume that our luck will last forever. And yet, the current nuclear policy of the United States and the other nuclear armed states is really nothing more than a hope for continued good luck. There's no planning for how to avoid this kind of accidental nuclear war.
2: Yeah, Ira, that's a, that's a very uh, a chilling description of what could happen, and I think that's a big problem that exists in the world today. Is not enough people understand that the imminence of the threat of nuclear war breaking out. Um, I. In in a Countdown to Zero documentary, or maybe some of the YouTube videos you were featured on, I remember you discussing about cyber terrorism and how cyber terrorism can create either real nuclear launches or maybe even false warning launches that could, in turn, create retaliation launches. Um, can you speak a little bit about how eminent that cyber terrorism threat is today and what safeguards we have against something like that happening?
1: Yeah, I mean. We used to think that the worst thing a terrorist could do with the nuclear in terms of nuclear weapons would be to get hold of one probably a small one and use it to attack a single city like new york or or moscow what we understand now is that the greater danger is that terrorists could carry out a cyber attack uh, that they could hack into the command and control systems of uh, the nuclear arsenal of one or the other of the nuclear armed states and either actually launch that country's nuclear weapons, or as as you suggested, more likely create a false alert, uh, make the country being hacked, believe that they are under nuclear attack uh, by one of their enemies and induce them to launching their nuclear arsenal. Uh, We don't know how close we are to that. We know, I mean, the Russians have hacked into everything in in the last year. Um, U.S. uh, defense systems, Pentagon-based cyber systems, get hacked into many times every day. Um, the concern is that at some point, some group with very bad aims is going to get in to the nuclear control systems. And the people who are in charge of cybersecurity just acknowledge this as a nightmare. The The offense always has the advantage over the defense in cyber terrorism because you don't know what they're going to do next. Um, and so we spend enormous amounts of money and, and resources and time and expertise trying to make our systems as safe as we can, but there's no guarantee that we're going to be successful. And that's true for the, the French nuclear arsenal, the British nuclear arsenal, the Chinese, the Indian, the Pakistani, the Israeli, all of these have the same kind of, of potential vulnerability. It is an insane situation that we keep these thousands of nuclear warheads, uh, many of them on hair-trigger alert, sitting on missiles that can be launched in a moment's, on a moment's notice, given the possibility that this could take place.
0: One of the uh, people that we talk about frequently on the podcast is uh, Nassim Taleb. He wrote The Black Swan, A Too Fragile, et cetera. One of the ideas he has is this idea of when you view an event in history, don't view that event as a singular moment in time, but instead ask yourself the following question. If you relive that day a hundred times, what would the outcome likely be? When you talk about some of the accidents that have occurred, some of the close calls that we've had, to me what's frightening, and this is very much Robert McNamara's point, if we were to relive the Cuban Missile Crisis 100 days in a row, if we were to relive January 1995 100 days in a row, it's very likely from what you're saying that we wouldn't be here right now, that in, that in fact it is luck that got us here. And unfortunately, with we, we have a weird hindsight bias almost, where we think that because we've made it this far, What we have in place must be good enough. But in fact, with a nuclear event, it only takes one time for something where we pay a massive price. And one of the things that came up in Countdown to Zero was even just the accidents that have occurred. We've had planes crash that have nuclear weapons on them. We've had planes that have been, from what I understand from the documentary, they were mistakenly loaded with nuclear weapons, not knowing that they had a nuclear bomb on board, and flew around with that. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how that even happens? And obviously the real danger that poses, because not just, I, I would imagine, it isn't just a problem in the United States, nuclear arsenal, but in fact, a problem with the nuclear arsenal over all of the nuclear club that we have on uh, the planet.
1: Yeah, I think that the general point, I, point is simply that we're not perfect. Um, we have created weapon systems um, the the ultimate security which requires that we be perfect and that our technology be perfect always. And that's just not what we are or what our technology is. Uh, You know, accidents happen. They happen all the time. I'm a doctor in medical settings where we try really hard to do no harm. Accidents happen all the time. And they happen all the time uh, on the battlefield. They happen all the time in the handling of of weapon systems. And it, it really is just a matter of time before one of those accidents leads to the ultimate catastrophe, as long as we keep the weapons around. Um, I think the real problem is something you referred to before, Joseph, which is this idea that that people don't get it, uh, and and they really don't. Um, Most people are, excuse me, simply not at all aware of the enormity of the danger. They don't appreciate how bad a nuclear war would be, and they don't think that nuclear war can happen. You know, as you were saying, Jimmy, there's this notion. Well, it hasn't happened, so it won't happen. Uh, there's an obvious fallacy in that. You know, I'm about as old as the nuclear weapons era. I haven't died yet. It doesn't mean I'm not going to die. It just means it hasn't happened yet. And that's that's literally the way people are thinking about this. Well, we've got, you know, we've gone 75 years since Nagasaki, and there hasn't been another nuclear weapon used against a population center. Things must be okay. Um, that just isn't the case. We. There was a time back in the 1980s at the height of the cold war when everyone understood how great the nuclear danger was i'm not sure what happened then that that it got through to people but since then we have lost that understanding a great peril to ourselves i mean people of your age for the most part have never been taught about this stuff um even smart well-educated people they just don't know anything about nuclear weapons people of my age who did know this once have it's more than forgotten. We've, we've, we've actively suppressed this information because it's so unpleasant to think about it. Um, and even beyond that, even those of us who understand who, intellectually that not only can nuclear war happen, but that it will happen if we don't do something very very fundamentally different, we don't believe it. Right. You know, it, it's, it's, it's like you look outside, it's a gorgeous day. You, you walk down a city street in normal times before the COVID crisis, and, and, and you see people living their lives and you can't believe that this would all just vanish in an instant. Um, and somehow or other, we have to get past that. We have to make ourselves understand that this really can happen. Not only that, that it's going to happen if right. you don't do something, right. but the flip side of that is that it doesn't need to happen. Nuclear weapons are not some force of nature that we have no control over. These are simple little machines that we have built with our own hands. We know how to take them apart. We've dismantled tens of thousands of them since the Cold War. And all we need to do is make a simple political decision that we are gonna get rid of the rest of them. Simple may be an overstatement. This is not gonna be a a totally easy process, but fundamentally it is. During the Cold War arms race, US and and the Soviets were building thousands of nuclear warheads a year. They were racing towards a nuclear conflict and, Reagan and Gorbachev came to the realization that no matter what issues divided our two countries, none of it was worth fighting a nuclear war over and that the arms race had to stop. That was it, that was the decision. And from that flowed the end of the arms race, the end of the cold war. It is possible for that to happen again President Biden needs to understand that all the wonderful things that he is trying to do right now will amount to nothing if there's a nuclear war. And so he needs to make the elimination of nuclear weapons, the central national security focus of his administration. And I would argue the central focus of his administration. He's identified four crises that we, we have to uh, address. Um, climate change, the COVID epidemic, the current economic disaster and the racial injustice crisis in our country. All of those are incredibly important. There's a fifth, the nuclear crisis. And I would argue that in some ways it takes precedence over the others in its urgency because if we don't successfully deal with this, we're not going to be around to deal with the others. So that's the question. Right. Will President Biden get it in the same way that Gorbachev and Reagan got it? Will he be able to sit down with Putin and Xi and get them to get it and get them to understand that all the other things that they're worrying about will amount to nothing if they don't prevent nuclear war. And the only way to do it is to get rid of these weapons.
2: And Ira, um, thanks for sharing that. Um, I think that a lot of people do fall under this paradigm that just the of having the idea that since nuclear weapons exist on the, on this planet, that it acts as a deterrent for nuclear war. But I think as you've highlighted that that's largely just an illusion. Um, with that in mind, I'd like to go back to World War II and ask you, do you think that dropping the bomb on on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, as horrible as it was, do you think that there's any merit in doing that? Because it, it seems as though it did effectively end the war. Um
1: It's not, I think, the most productive conversation to have, Joseph, but I would simply say, because it it happened, um, we need to focus on keeping it from happening again. But I think that there is abundant evidence that we did not need to drop the bombs to end the war, that the Japanese were frantically trying to surrender at that point. Um, We had blown the whole country apart with conventional weapons before we dropped the nuclear weapons. And there's much evidence that suggests that the real target for those bombs was not the Japanese, but the Soviets. That we wanted to make it clear to them, not only that we had these weapons, but that we were willing to use them against against cities. Um, I think, you know, the really critical question is, can we imagine any circumstances today under which we would use nuclear weapons, given the likely outcome of any use of nuclear weapons? Uh, And it's not just a question for the United States, it's a question for all the nuclear armed countries. We focus a lot on the US-Russia dynamic, increasingly now the US-China dynamic. I worry as much about the India-Pakistan situation. Um, Mm -hmm. These -hmm. countries each have about 150 nuclear warheads at this point, their arsenals are growing. They have fought four wars since independence in the 1940s. Um, They not only have significant political and religious animosities, but there are some real resource Uh, issues that are coming into play between them, particularly around the waters of the Indus River, uh, which both countries rely on, and which are not adequate to the demand being placed on them by the population in India and in Pakistan. And as time progresses, as climate change progresses, and that area gets hotter and drier, and there's less water, the likelihood of conflict, again, between India and Pakistan is very great. And... Given what we know about the current situation, there, if there is a war between India and Pakistan, it will almost certainly be a nuclear war. And what we also know is that a nuclear war between India and Pakistan will not only be a disaster for South Asia, in which perhaps 100, 125 million people will die in the first week, but it will be also a climate disaster for the entire planet, not quite as great a climate disruption as we would see in a large war between the US and Russia but enough climate disruption to trigger crop failures across the entire planet and trigger a famine, which we've estimated could kill up to 2 billion people. Um, That would not be the extinction of our species. It would be the end of civilization as we know it. No civilization in history has ever withstood a shock of that magnitude. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that the very fragile, complex economic system that we all depend on would survive that kind of disruption. Now, that, that conflict is something which doesn't register at all with uh, people in this country, the general population, or frankly, the decision makers. When we talk to them about it, um, for the most part, they're unaware of the fact that war in South Asia will have that kind of global consequence. And um, it's, it's part of the, the general problem of getting people to understand how urgent it is to address this problem.
0: Yeah, and Ira... Uh, <sighs> Just so that our, our listeners know, um, Ira's group did put out a paper called Nuclear Famine, 2 Billion Dead," where he walks through the various ways in which the 2 billion people are affected by that. And we'll be putting that in our links below so people can, can read that paper. Um, I mean, it's extremely frightening because the thing is that, and you've talked to us about this at the very end of that, of that paper, that the 2 billion number is really just kind of in some sense the first wave of people to be affected by food scarcity because, of course, that could itself lead to other conflicts in other regions. And, and in a sense, true. you may have a war between India and Pakistan, but then causes starvation in some other country that may push that country to go into war with somebody else. And this whole thing spirals, you know, it, it, as if the 2 billion wasn't bad enough, it could quickly become an extinction level event because if countries have starving citizens, they're going to fight for, for their citizenry. and uh, the impact fallout, the nuclear winter of even a small India-Pakistan uh, exchange could very quickly become a World War III type event just from the fallout of people fighting over food. Exactly. Can we
1: talk for a little bit about what we could do about this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So please. I Yes, please. So as I say, this marks kind of our, our, our halfway point. And I was the, the next topic was going to be about what we do uh, moving forward. And I wanted just to kind of open up that discussion real quick. There, There is some positive news very recently uh, with the UN Treaty on uh, essentially what amounts to countries agreeing to not pursue nuclear weapons. And so I definitely want to give you plenty of time to talk about that and then other positive developments in the disarmament space.
1: So let's talk about the treaty for just a minute, because uh, this is really a, a huge milestone. Um, the, on uh, January 22nd, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons entered into force. Um, This is a treaty that was negotiated uh, by the countries which do not have nuclear weapons. And um, it uh, was adopted at the United Nations in July of 2017 by a vote of 122 to 1. Uh, And in October of this past year, the 50th country ratified the treaty, which was the threshold that needed to be reached for the treaty to become legally binding. This treaty says not only that it's illegal to use nuclear weapons, but it's illegal to possess them, to develop them, to test them, to transport them, to finance the building of these weapons, to aid in the building of these weapons. Uh, And it it is an enormously powerful statement by the global community that the existence of nuclear weapons is simply intolerable. The nuclear Arms states back in 1969 promised in the non-proliferation treaty that in exchange for non-nuclear countries agreeing never to build nuclear weapons, they, the countries that already had them, would engage in good faith negotiations to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. They have ignored that obligation ever since, for 60 mm-hmm. years now. And the rest of the world, excuse me, 50 years, the rest of the world it, it finally said we're fed up with this. Uh, you cannot continue to hold our people, our citizens hostage as well as your own to this insane policy of maintaining nuclear arsenals. The weakness of the treaty at the moment is that the non-nuclear, nuclear armed states have not signed it yet and have indicated no indication that they're going to. But that does not, I, I think uh, we need to understand that despite that, the treaty has enormous power. Um, it mm-hmm. is creating a new norm in the in the across the planet, that nuclear weapons are no longer a status symbol; they are a mark that the countries that have them are essentially rogue states that live outside of international law. And we've seen with similar treaties banning landmines and cluster munitions that even the countries that didn't actually sign and ratify the treaties felt constrained by them. They stopped building these weapons. They stopped using these weapons. And uh, the hope is that, in as the, the process continues and more countries sign and ratify this treaty, um, that we will be able to use it to bring great pressure on the nuclear armed states to finally meet their obligations. Now, here in the United States, we've launched a campaign called Back from the Brink, which is designed to bring about the fundamental change in U.S. nuclear policy that we need. Uh, The central aspect of this campaign is a call on the United States to enter now into negotiations with all of the other nuclear-armed countries for a verifiable enforceable timeline for dismantling the rest of their nuclear weapons. The essential condition for them to be able to join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which does not include those kinds of details, that still need to be worked out. What's the timetable for getting rid of the weapons? How are we gonna know that, that all the nuclear-armed states are doing it? And what we're calling for is for the United States to begin those negotiations now Uh, to fulfill the terms of the TPNW. Uh, We don't know if the other nuclear-armed states will respond if the United States tries to do this. But we don't know because we've never tried. And there's no particular reason to believe that we can't succeed in this. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a committed effort by the administration. But it is absolutely essential if we're going to survive. And so that's, that's the real heart of the Back from the Brink campaign. We also call for the U.S. to take four immediate unilateral steps that will lessen the danger of nuclear war as these negotiations proceed, which will perhaps give further impetus to the negotiations. We call on the United States to uh, announce that it will never use nuclear weapons first. We call on the United States to end the current policy whereby the president of the United States can launch nuclear war on his or her sole authority without anybody else having a say in the decision. We call on the United States to take its weapons off hair trigger alert. If we're going to blow up the world, we can do it tomorrow. We don't have to have the warheads sitting on missiles that can be launched in 15 minutes. And we call on the United States to abandon the plan to spend $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years, enhancing every aspect of our nuclear arsenal, making them these weapons more deadly, more usable, and essentially guaranteeing that we will continue to maintain this arsenal the decades to come, despite the fact that we know what's going to happen if we do that. So this campaign um, started as a small initiative in Western Massachusetts, where I, where I live. Uh, it is now spread. It's a national campaign. Over 300 organizations around the country, uh, professional organizations, faith communities, civic organizations. Um, environmental organizations, uh, justice organizations have joined this campaign. More than 50 towns and cities around the country have endorsed the campaign and six state legislative bodies have endorsed the campaign as well. Uh, we have a website, preventnuclearwar.org. And what we, the way this campaign is, is, is designed is to try to get as many organizations, cities, towns, whatever, to endorse this platform as possible thereby essentially creating a national consensus of what U.S. nuclear policy should be. Uh, and so I would encourage anyone who's, who's listening to go to that website and learn more about the campaign and learn how you can get your local community to be a part of this national effort. Um, we are pleased with how rapidly it's grown. It needs to grow much more to be able to push the Biden administration to do the right thing.
0: And we'll definitely include all those links below. I mean, as I was saying, obviously, this is a very pressing issue. I do want to tie in, I think, a topic that gets brought up in nuclear nonproliferation talks or, uh, in in fact, even tying it back to the UN treaty, there is a provision that said that it would not, that none of these uh, laws or rules would impact nuclear power. And I wanted just to kind of get your take. uh, I was just curious, uh, as somebody myself who is uh, I would say largely a supporter of nuclear power. Do, do you see nuclear power being compatible with nuclear non-proliferation? How do you see those two things mixing together uh, on this debate and on this uh, talk about uh, nuclear material and the availability, uh, particularly around enrichment? Yeah.
1: No, I, I don't think nuclear power is compatible with a world free of nuclear weapons. Uh, the technology behind uh, commercial nuclear power is, is so close to the technology required to build nuclear weapons. If you promote that technology around the world, you create the conditions in which nuclear proliferation can occur. And it's worth noting in that context that um, the North Korean weapons, the Indian weapons, the Pakistani weapons, the Israeli weapons were all developed out of what were supposed to be civilian nuclear programs. Hmm. So uh, I think the link between nuclear power and nuclear proliferation is clearly documented and one which we cannot ignore. There are many other problems with nuclear power as well. Uh, You know, the the potential for catastrophic accidents like Fukushima and Chernobyl is always there. Um, The idea that nuclear power will help us to deal with the climate crisis, I think is profoundly flawed, uh, primarily on an economic level. Um, The cost of building nuclear power plants is exorbitant and the money that would be spent in a nuclear power plant will get us much more carbon saving if it is instead used for true renewables like wind or solar or conservation efforts. And so I think we, we need to understand that clearly, that, that nuclear power is not an answer to the climate crisis and that it is something which contributes to nuclear proliferation. I mean, we need to get away from that as quickly as we can.
2: I think that's a that's a good point, and that's not something that a lot of people take into consideration. Um, Ira, I did want to ask you um, a, a question about how you manage to stay so positive through, through all this, having this nuclear war at the front, forward, front, back front of your mind. How, how do you keep such a positive mindset that I think is effective because you've obviously been able to make change in this department. So if you could speak to that.
1: Uh, that. Thanks for that question. Cause I think it's a really important one. People often feel, you know, they hear this information and they just get kind of overwhelmed and kind of you know, crawl into a little shell and, and don't want don't to even think about it.
2: That's how I, I felt I, I'm, first. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I'm optimistic because I don't think this is the future that needs to be. Uh, I'm also a little bit desperate because I think it is the future that it's going to be if we don't get our act together. But I do think we can, we can do that. We can get our act together. There is no reason at all why we have to go down this road. Um, and, and I'm particularly buoyed by the experience of the 1980s when we really were heading to nuclear war and we headed it off. Um, you know, we, 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 millions of people took action and the decision by Gorbachev and Reagan didn't take place in a vacuum. They were responding to a climate in which they, they, they had to confront the danger of nuclear war because it was being thrust at them. The information was being thrust at them all the time by demonstrations, by the media, by, by popular culture. There were movies, there, was, there were songs, there were books about nuclear war and it was inescapable. So having seen that we did this once before, I mean, I, I literally think we prevented nuclear war in the 1980s, we, we, we would have had one had it not been for the enormous outpouring of, of uh, uh, civil society at that time. Having seen the success that we had back in the 1980s, I am confident that we can do this again. And that's why I'm as positive as I am. And I am, I, I, you know I, as you pointed out, Joseph, I, I spend a lot of time talking about this and thinking about this. And there's a part of that which is quite depressing, but I'm not a pessimistic person at this point. I, I believe that we can get beyond this crisis. And I think that in the process of doing that, uh, countries are going to have to work with each other in ways which will make it possible to address some of the other great crises that we're facing, the climate crisis, the crisis of resources, the crisis of overpopulation. I think we can learn how to work together internationally by addressing this nuclear crisis, which is actually in many ways the the easier, easiest of all of these to solve if we choose to do it.
0: You know, I I wanted to build on that note a little bit and just give you a chance to mention, uh, you know, we mentioned at the beginning in kind of your bio, the the groups themselves that you're involved in, but we wanted to give you time just to talk about those groups, what those groups are working towards, and then we mentioned the UN treaty, we've mentioned uh, the the websites that are on these uh, efforts to prevent proliferation. Are there any other modern developments happening right now that people should be aware of that are positive developments in the space of uh, trying to prevent nuclear war and fighting nuclear armament?
1: Well, you know, the Biden administration in its first week has taken some significant positive steps. Um, It it has indicated it's going to uh, extend the New START treaty with Russia, which Trump let expire. Uh, It has indicated that it is going to try to go back into the Uh, agreement with Iran to stop their nuclear um, program, Um, and it has indicated an interest in pursuing deeper reductions with the Russians than are provided for in the new START treaty. Um, It's also indicated an interest in cutting uh, significantly the funding for nuclear weapons and, and moving away from the full investment that was put forward by President Obama initially and then by President Trump. Um, so those are those are positive developments. That clearly is this administration has a much deeper understanding of the nuclear danger, um, and I think we we should we should take some uh, some comfort in the fact that we have uh, an administration which which does understand the danger somewhat more. Right. But I think we need to at the same time though we also need to understand that these steps by themselves are not enough. And uh, one of my great worries, frankly, is that we will have. That I refer to as a catastrophic pyrrhic victory, that will get rid, will take a number of important steps to lower the danger of nuclear war, and everyone will say, "Oh, okay, the problem has been dealt with," but it won't be, because we still won't have gotten rid of the vast majority of the weapons, and we will still be exposed to the, I think, certain danger that they will be used at some point. So as we support the steps that the Biden administration is taking, we need to be very, very firm with them, that these steps are not enough unless they are part of a concerted effort to actually eliminate these weapons. What we need from this administration is a clear statement that it sees the elimination of nuclear weapons as the highest national security priority of the United States, that it is committed to the vision articulated by President Obama in Prague of the security of a world free of nuclear weapons but not as some distant aspirational goal to be achieved at some remote and undefined point in the future. Rather, it sees the elimination of these weapons as an urgent task, which must be pursued actively now with the goal to securing the elimination of these weapons in a reasonable time frame. We could negotiate the agreement with the other nuclear armed states over the next two to three years, and we could have all these weapons eliminated by 2030. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. And that's the standard that we need to hold this administration to. What is their plan for engaging with the Russians about a fundamental shift that we will all seek the elimination of nuclear weapons?
0: Absolutely. Joe, yeah. so I wanted to Lily, a question. I wanted to give you the opportunity to.
2: Uh, I had a question about some of your background, Ira. Um, I understand that you're a a medical doctor, you work in emergency medicine, as I understand it, and that your involvement in preventing nuclear proliferation uh, started to take place, it seems, shortly after med school. And I wanted to know what the connection between medicine and between uh, preventing nuclear proliferation is, because it is a reassuring thought to know that medical doctors and physicians are are uh, as worried and fighting the good battle on this?
1: Well, you know, those of us in the medical community who work on this issue see this primarily as the greatest public health threat that's ever existed, and that's what the connection is. Um, we, when we looked at what the medical consequences of nuclear war would be, it was clear that there was no response that the medical community could make to a nuclear war if it happened. Um, And we felt it was our responsibility to make that clear to the general population because there was this kind of notion that, well, you know, there'll be a nuclear war, but we'll all come together. We'll figure out how to get past this. The medical people will come in and and save our lives and so on. And we discovered that this simply wasn't true. We looked at what would happen if there was a nuclear attack on Boston. This was way back in the 60s when I was still in in junior high school, but the the first group of physicians to work on this issue here in the United States. and they concluded that, that a nuclear attack was something for which there would be no medical response. And this is now the official position of the International uh, Red Cross Movement as well, which is the sort of global standard for disaster response. Nuclear war cannot be responded to. So that's, that was what motivated myself and, and the thousands of other doctors who joined Physicians for Social Responsibility here in the United States and our global federation, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War across the planet to become active on this issue. Uh, And I think it's been an important perspective. We recently held a a webinar uh, to celebrate the entry into force of the treaty that was sponsored jointly by International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the World Medical Association, the World Federation of Public Health Associations, the International Committee of the Red Cross and the International Nursing Council, essentially all of the major global medical and public health organizations, uh, and I think it is, it is quite noteworthy that all of these organizations are strongly of the opinion that we are facing a nuclear crisis, that the treaty and the prohibition of nuclear weapons uh, needs to be supported, and that we need to move rapidly to the elimination of all of these weapons.
2: So as a, as a physician and someone that serves on the board of multiple committees and is negotiating um, deals with different governments and UN councils. How, how do you, do you have time to sleep or how do you manage to, to balance all these plates?
1: Um, I, I don't sleep a whole lot. Um, no, it, I, I've, I've worked full time as a doctor during all of this time and, and have tried to do this as on the side. And I, I must say, um, it, it also goes back to the mental health question that you raised before. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it um, the, there's a, a nice complementarity between the two kinds of work I do. You know, in, in my daily medical practice, I'm dealing with immediate concrete problems that I can make a, effect change right in the moment. Um, in the nuclear thing, we're dealing with a much bigger problem, global significance, but something which the progress is sometimes very hard to see. So the two have sort of played off against each other. Um, it has been difficult. But it's certainly not been impossible. And one of the messages that I, that I try to bring to people is you don't have to be a full-time nuclear activist to, to have an impact. You know, there are people who do that. That's their job, and that's wonderful. But lots of people have other careers that they are pursuing. They still can make an important contribution uh, to the effort to, to prevent nuclear war um, because this is not something that requires you to do it full-time.
0: And I think that's a great... Um... Know for us to begin to wrap things up with. I know, Ira, you have, uh, as you were just saying, a busy day to get back to. So, you know, we will, for anybody listening, you know, we will be putting all these links on our site so people can go in these various organizations, learn more about them. Um, Ira, but before I close this out, I wanted just to give you a few minutes to share any closing thoughts that you had, uh, any, any other things you wanted to mention on this program, uh, give you one more, one more chance to do that.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, Jimmy, you know, the one thing I guess I would, I would close with is uh, I, I suspect that many of your uh, people who, who listen to your, to your program are, are young people. And, and I have a certain, there's a certain guilt when I present this issue to young people because, um, you know, you certainly haven't created the problem. And in, in that very important sense, you're not responsible for it. Um, but I think in, it's important to understand that in a more profound sense, you are responsible for it, you young people. Because if you don't take action to prevent nuclear war, if, if, I don't, if you don't join with, with everybody else who's doing this, it's not your responsibility alone, but if all of us don't take action, then these things are going to happen. Uh, and it's going to be terrible. And the world that we know is not going to exist anymore. And so in that most profound sense, we do have a responsibility to take action. I think we have to look at this, though, not just as a burden, although it clearly is that. But each one of us wants to do something good with our life. And those of us who are living today have literally been given the opportunity to save the world. And there is nothing better that anyone can ever do with his or her life than save the world. And I, I hope people will, will view this, this challenge in that context. Um, we have a chance... To make all the future history possible, to leave our children a planet where they can thrive and have their lives, uh, and and that's really something of a gift uh, to be in that situation.
0: You know, I uh, on, on more than one occasion I try to turn a clever phrase, but uh, what you just said about you know saving the future and about you know giving it so we have a possible future is um one that i might be stealing from you in the future just so you're aware no i did oh, I, yeah. I wanted <laughs> i just i wanted to end this with I, I was recently watching um an interview back in 1964 with walter Cronkite and dwight d eisenhower and they were walking along the shores of normandy talking about the invasion and they were at one point were working or walking around a cemetery and you know Eisenhower was basically asked or, you know, answered the question, you know, what was the purpose of D-Day and what does D-Day mean? You know, D-Day for our listeners, you know, June 6th when we invaded, turned the tide of the war and really uh, was in, in, in some sense the turning point for the conflict. But a lot of people died on that invasion. And Eisenhower's point was essentially say the point of D-Day was to buy humanity time to figure out how to solve problems in the future without violence. And if I could just, you know, impose one thing on our listeners today, that time is coming to an end. We are running out of time to learn lessons that we don't have the opportunity to experiment with. We don't have an opportunity to get it wrong with nuclear weapons, with nuclear war, with limited nuclear exchanges. We don't have that option. We have to learn this lesson without doing the experiment. And I, I very much agree with what Ira is saying, that this is within our power. And we've said this on our program multiple times before. you know We have to commit ourselves to working towards a future for this planet and for its people. Because otherwise, what are we doing? And uh, I, for one, am inspired by Ira's message. It obviously can be dark. But I think more importantly, the fact that everybody on this podcast, probably everybody who's listening, the fact that we believe in humanity enough to overcome this challenge <clears throat> is, I think, all the motivation that we need to get our act together and to take the steps we need to prevent this from happening. So on that note, I just want to thank you, Ira, again for joining us. I know that you're very busy. We appreciate your time for coming on the program. And I was just going to sign off for uh, Joseph Stanford. I'm Jimmy Hackett on the Roses Rider Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We will see you all next time.